It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Oh, Sky, what a great week it was. It's spring break here at the General Assembly, and you look rested and ready for next week. So we spent a lot of this uh, week catching up with clients. We've had a lot of, of Zoom calls with clients. We've been able to get on the phone, meet with some in person. You have been making charts. You're the chart maker here at New Frame. So we, you know, you spent... That's f- my official title, just chart maker. Wow, thank you. Tell our listeners about these charts that you like to make for us. I love a chart. And so I like to do a chart of all of our clients' asks um, and just in one place so you can reference it. And I, I also do a chart of budget asks, things like that, just so that we have for reference a quick place to look back to. But although we were at spring break, the House and Senate, they're gone. It was the bill filing deadline on Wednesday in the Senate for all public bills, which uh, we're recording this on Thursday. So yesterday we saw a flurry of bills. Will you explain to listeners what exactly a public bill is? Public bills are the bills that you're most aware of those bills that affect everyone there are local bills which are only for a certain district or a certain town or municipality those local bills have a certain bill filing deadline a public bill has a bill filing deadline and also agency bills um, any bills recommended by certain agencies they have a separate bill filing deadline and so what you mean by agencies like the department of public instruction the attorney general's office the court systems those are agency bills yeah and those on the bill title say a b at the end that's how you know when something is an agency bill but the way to get around that bill filing deadline is to add an appropriation to something. So anything that is going to cost money, take money out of the state's general fund, um, raise taxes, any anything like that, those are not subject to that bill filing deadline. That's right. So sometimes lobbyists will use the appropriation, let's say public bills, those are policy bills. You know, you can't do this, uh, making things criminal, setting policy. Those are public bills. They have to be heard in one chamber by the crossover date, which is in mid-May this year. Oftentimes, lobbyists or interest groups are out there, and maybe they, they're working on an issue, and they don't want to have to meet that crossover deadline, because maybe that issue, the timing isn't right. So we're working with a client now where, you know, they're saying, we think we want to wait until into session, so what we are taking is their public bill, and we're putting an appropriation in it, and we're putting a revenue stream, and that makes it crossover proof. So... You know, there's a lot of bills out there, lots of types of bills, lots of deadlines. What you need to know is that yesterday, if you wanted a policy uh, introduced into the General Assembly on the Senate side, yesterday was your deadline. I think we mentioned last week that the House moved their bill filing deadline back two weeks. So instead of it being April 27th, it is now May 11th 
which is extremely close, about 48 hours from the crossover deadline, again, when one bill needs to pass one chamber in order to be viable for the session, that date is May 13th. So it'll be really interesting just to see if legislators, leadership chooses to change that crossover deadline to allow for some more time. So for all those procrastinating lobbyists out there, uh, you've got an exciting deadline coming up on May 11th. And then you turn around uh, 48 hours later and you have to have your bill through committees and through the floor. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, the, the May 13th crossover deadline is really May 12th because anyone can object to third reading and your bill is dead. And I have seen bills die on crossover with an objection to third reading when crossover happens you go late into the night Um, they go to midnight generally and so during that time there there are sessions that are 6 7 p.m and they have to take a break so everyone goes out to eat has a couple drinks loosens up a little bit and then comes back and it's kind of just a hangout at night at the general assembly and i personally love those nights i think it's fun you you get to know people better because everyone's just kind of hanging out there together. Um, same for budget nights. Yeah, yeah, it is fun. There, there's a lot of collegiality going on. Um, there's a lot of celebration when you get your bill passed through crossover. And then there's some folks that are looking to drown their sorrows uh, who don't get their bill passed by crossover. And it, it can be tough. And everyone's been uh, on both sides of that coin. Yeah. We had a listener reach out to us recently. And she wanted to know more about the social aspects of the work we do, Sky. And I think there is this idea out there, maybe it's from television and movies and novels, but there's this idea out there that lobbyists are just constantly hobnobbing and we're going to receptions and we're taking legislators to dinner and our days and nights are just full of really drinking drinking yeah let's get (laughs) let's get right to the point drinking and getting things done in some cigar smoky back rooms i would say that a day is like pretty much another work day for someone in a different sector you get up and instead of going to your office you go to the general assembly so there's committees meetings with legislators and meetings with other lobbyists you kind of just mill around that is where the word lobbying comes from waiting in the lobby and so you are just there there's this idea that maybe lobbyists and legislators go out for a few cocktails at lunch Uh, most lobbyists i know brown bag it at the general assembly you will see folks bringing their lunch in if you're brian lewis you just bring a frozen burrito every day every single day i bring a frozen amy's frozen burrito you might eat at the cafeteria but you know committee meetings really start at 8 30 they end sometime around two o'clock session is usually two or three o'clock You may stick around for session. You may come back to the office and listen to session or watch it on TV here at the office. So once in a while, a legislator will invite you to maybe go get a drink. If a representative or a senator or a staffer asks you to go for a drink or have dinner with them, there is sort of an expectation that you will do that. 
Yeah, and, and it really is an opportunity for you to get outside of the building and have a discussion about the legislation that maybe is pending in their committee or legislation you want them to support, or maybe you want to learn why they're opposed to legislation and how it can be fixed. I've been at the General Assembly for the last 21 years. I would say the first third of my career, I worked under where it was no no holds barred. You were allowed to take legislators to dinner. You were allowed to buy them drinks. You were allowed to take them on trips and give them gifts. And around 2007, 2008, I believe it was, when Speaker Joe Hackney came in, they, they wanted to do a lot of reforms around former Speaker Jim Black and, and some of the, the gifts that were flowing. And so it is a different environment. Um, at the time, I worked for a child advocacy organization we had no money to to spend on legislators and take them out. I felt that I was at a disadvantage because I would see interest groups that were bigger and had more resources take these legislators out and host them. And I did feel like it did change the next day after I learned they'd go to dinner. I would see that you know, there were concerns about legislation I was proposing, and it was very difficult for me to compete with that. So in 2008, 2009, when when these laws go into effect, I do believe that, you know, going to dinner is different today. You do get an opportunity to talk to them, but it's not, you are not buying their dinner. You're not allowed to buy their dinner. And so there is kind of this wall that is up. All lobbyists have a different style, and it's interesting that folks do have different styles. Some people are very relationship-oriented, and those are the people that I think you generally think about when you think about the social aspect of the job. There are people that we know that do go out every night with legislators. We are not those people, but there are some people that that's the way that they work and that's their style and that works for them. But there are others who are really focused on policy and technical provisions. And those folks are probably less likely to be seen as the folks that go out at night. We have clients that come into town that are very social. And so they want, when they are in town visiting the General Assembly, lobbying, they go out with legislators maybe that evening. Firefighters are a great example. Uh, they, they will drink a beer or two with a legislator. Or two. Or two. And uh, we have some clients that they just go to the General Assembly. They make their rounds. They may speak in committee. But then they just leave, go back to the office, and, and, and they have no interest in going out. One of, the, one of the things that we saw this week, Sky, was a PSA. Uh, the public service announcement. We have been talking about it in some past episodes. Uh, Governor Roy Cooper, Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger, uh, Democratic leader Senator Dan Blue, uh, Speaker Tim Moore, and Democratic House leader Robert Reeves all teamed up to record what I think is about an 80-second public service announcement encouraging North Carolinians to get a vaccine for COVID-19. Yeah, it was a nice moment of bipartisanship, and um, really everyone was on the same page about promoting vaccines. So we are hearing reports inside the General Assembly. The media has been covering it. Uh, there is some vaccine hesitancy out there, especially in rural communities. There was a report uh, on WREL last week about a, a county 
that was saying they, they don't need any more vaccines, even though they are uh, experiencing COVID-19 in high numbers, that, that in some rural communities, uh, North Carolinians just aren't signing up because there is this hesitancy. Yeah, that magic number that we have heard about for herd immunity to be able to not wear masks, loosen restrictions, kind of go back to, as everyone has said, quote, normal, um, unquote, we would need um, 80 to 85 percent of folks to be vaccinated. And with the hesitancy, it, it looks like it would be hard to get to that number. It does. But we really appreciate uh, the leadership, including Governor Cooper, in, in coming together and, and recording this PSA. We hope that it has a positive effect. I know that you and I are looking forward to getting back to normal at the General Assembly. We are both vaccinated. Our colleague, Christy Jones, who works here at New Frame, she is vaccinated. Many of our clients are, but we're still wearing masks at the General Assembly. It sounds like we're going to be wearing masks for a long time, but the sooner you get vaccinated, the sooner we can get back to normal. And maybe we could, we could, we could start resume our Do Politics Better Dinners again. So we were proud this week to have Senator Mike Woodard visit us at the New Frame office. He stopped by on Wednesday. Again, we're recording this on Thursday. We had a great conversation with him, and uh, let's listen to that interview now. Well, Senator Mike Woodard, welcome to the Do Politics Better podcast. Thank you for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You represent Durham County and then a part of Granville County. Can you talk about your district? And I'll tell you, when we think of Durham, we think of the city of Durham. But it sounds like you go up into some of the, the rural areas of the county. Yeah, I, this is bad grammar. So my English teacher uh, from high school, she's listening, forgive me. But I always say that I represent the most unique district in the General Assembly because of the mix of urban and rural that it, that it makes up. Um, Dr. Michael Bitzer from Catawba, a great observer of North Carolina politics, wrote a piece a few years ago that said North Carolina's population now is one-third urban, one-third suburban, and one-third rural. North Carolina Senate District 22 is, guess what, one-third urban, one-third suburban, and one-third rural. So the district comprises the northern half of Durham County. So if you think of the Duke campus in Durham, where it's located, and then it goes north from there, and includes Granville and Person counties, um, both uh, counties in their entirety, all the way to the Virginia line. So in Durham, it's the, uh, it's the Duke campus, Duke Hospital. Uh, it's the urban neighborhoods that surround that area. Uh, Trinity Park, Walltown, Old West Durham, Watts Hospital, then you start becoming this, into the suburban areas, American Village, um, Old Farms, Traburn, Crowsdale, and you start getting the acre, two acre lots. Then you get to Rougemont and Bahama, and those are uh, becoming very quickly agricultural uh, rural communities, and then of course Granville in person. And they had their towns, Oxford, Butner, Creedmoor, Roxborough, uh, but for the most part they're rural. So I have traveled through your district a lot, uh, played uh, baseball up in Granville County, uh, spent a lot of time uh, on those ball fields. You're talking about a very diverse district. 
which I imagine has very diverse opinions about some of the legislation that you vote on every day in the Senate. Sure. I mean, it's, it's diverse in, uh, in, in its outlook, um, in, in political thought, in party representation. Uh, it's also very diverse in the interests of the district. What matters, pick a topic. Transportation to the city of Durham is very different than what matters to people who live in Hurdle Mills or Timberlake or Oak Hill or Allensdale or places like that. So uh, very different kinds of issues. Environmental issues are very different in um, the city of Durham versus environmental issues, um, you know, in, in northern Granville County. What is your greatest legislative accomplishment? Gosh, um, I could think of a number, but I would say of recent vintage uh, within the last year or so, um, I would say probably House Bill 77 last year with the transportation. Um, because of a number of things, we found the Department of Transportation um, had a, a big deficit. And so um, Senator Berger asked me to join with uh, Senators McKinnis and Jim Davis, who's no, who's, I was gonna say no longer with us. He's no longer in the legislature, thank God. Uh, but uh, Davis and McKinnis were chairing transportation last year. And so Senator Berger um, asked me to work with those two guys on what the path forward was to help DOT. So McKinnis Davis and I spent a lot of time together over probably, it was real intense, about a month to come up with the solution for that. So I'm real proud of the work we did on that. We had to make some very hard choices, uh, some that I didn't always agree with, but uh, in the spirit of this podcast, Do Politics Better, mm-hmm. I think the work um, those two Republicans and me as the Democrat in the group did together working with the Department of Transportation, with the governor and his staff, um, working with the private sector, because there are a lot of businesses in North Carolina who care a lot about transportation policy, um, particularly if they are in the engineering and construction areas. So we, the stakeholder group the three of us had was just incredibly big and had some strong opinions. And working our way through to find um, what I think was a reasonable solution to that was something. I'm pretty proud of what we did in there. Uh, one of the things that you're known for is um, you are fun to be around, you get along with anyone, but you seem to have a very unique relationship with former Senator Jerry Tillman from Randolph <laughs> County. Uh, we're going to look for some audio to play in this of you singing with Senator Tillman. Oh, please uh, don't. You'll lose <laughs> listeners like that. <laughs> that was Senator Mike Woodard and former Senator Jerry Tillman. Republican from Randolph County. Senator, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Senator Tillman. Um, some might think it's, 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 a, it's an odd couple relationship, he being a very conservative Republican from Randolph County and, and you being a progressive Democrat from Durham. We found that we had a love of old country music. That's something that we shared. So, I, and I can't even remember how it started, but it started early on and I don't remember. Jerry might have been singing something one day, and I joined in, and he probably looked at 
this guy from Durham doing doing this old Merle Haggard song or Willie Nelson song or something more obscure than that. I mean, I think it impressed them that I actually knew who it was and knew the words of the song. So then we started comparing uh, musical artists that, that we liked and realized that we had that love. So that's where our friendship started. And uh, so, yeah, we're famous or perhaps infamous for uh, singing duets from time to time. One year at the uh, tomato sandwich luncheon, uh, Jerry and I got up and stood in one of those flower pots out in the quad there, and we sang uh, Homegrown Tomatoes, the old Guy Clark song. So, uh, and, and we've duetted many times on other, other songs. But from that shared interest, uh, love of, of country music, um, we just developed a, a great friendship. And I tell Jerry, I, uh, to this day, I still talk to him fairly regularly and said, you know, we'll fuss and fight on some issues just like cats and dogs, but um, you know, we're still great friends and, um, uh, and, and enjoy that. So when we agree, we agree greatly. When we disagree, we disagree. But, but we don't let that uh, uh, get in the way of our friendship. How would you describe your brand of politics? Um, for me, it starts with serving your people. So service is always at the top of my list. Um, serving the people I represent. Um, and you can ask most anybody in my district who knows me, um, many of my colleagues at the General Assembly. I am a fierce advocate for the communities I represent, for the people I represent. They're the three best counties in the state. They have the best communities in the state, and I'll fight you on that, and I'll fight for them. So the service thing is first for me, um, and serving those folks and, and helping them have a better life in their communities, one. Two is um, I thrive on knowledge. I, I, I think you, to be effective in this job, you got to know what you're doing. So uh, I really love the intellectual part of this job, uh, learning a lot about issues. Um, I talked to um, a... Uh, the Pepsi-Cola bottler in my district today about some issues they were having. What do I know about bottling Pepsi-Cola and Mountain Dew? But so we spent, you know, the better part of half an hour learning about that so I could help him with that. Or a few years ago, another funny story, another bill I'm really proud of was working with um, four house colleagues who all had ties to the funeral industry had a call from a funeral home in Roxburgh who said, hey, there's this bill and we don't know much about what's going on. Do you mind asking about it? So I went to Representative Jamie Bowles in the House who was working on the bill and I said, what's, what's going on with this bill? My constituent called. This takes my first and second point, service to my constituent and to understanding the bill. And uh, Representative Bowles said, you know, I need a senator to work with me on this. Right now it's just four House members. And maybe it was just a stupid thing to do. I said, yeah, I'll help you. We worked for a year and a half, I guess, on a bill that turned out to be something like 60 pages wow. of dense stuff. And I would sit in these meetings, and I, I had no idea how the funeral industry in this state worked. And it's a complicated mess of stuff. Um, but, boy, when we finished that bill, I learned a lot about that. And it was fascinating. And, so I feel like now I know a lot about that industry, thanks to Representative Bowles and, and the other House members who worked with me on that. Um, and then it's relationships. I mean, I think working with your colleagues in the building, 
working with members of the executive branch of government, the administration, working with the staff. And, you know, it's so important to, to know your staff. They will save you. I mean, they, they save us all the time. And so just building relationships, whether it's with, you know, Jerry Tillman or um, Tom McKinnis on transportation or Jamie Bowles on this funeral bill, um, it's just make, building relationships with folks like that. So you've got some place to start uh, when you do your work together. Can you talk a little bit about um, this caucus that you helped found over on the Senate side and how that affects your relationship inside inside the building? Well, um, and, and Brian, you're enough of a veteran to remember when legislators would often go out to dinner together and, and do things socially. And at some point, we sort of lost some of that tradition, I think. But um, I always knew about that and heard great stories about wonderful dinners the folks had and uh, going out and spending time together. So when I got here and realized that had kind of waned some uh, in the years before I came. Um, and I remember uh, Senator Purcell, Dr. Purcell, um, from down in Rockingham County was one of the organizers of the Monday night dinners when he served. And so I remember Dr. Purcell saying one time to me, he said, I hope you'll continue that and, and connect with some of the Republicans um, who, who are working on that. So when I got here, I was like, well, where are we going to eat? I live in Durham, so I can go home at night, but these legislators who live further away, you know, what do they do? We adjourn, you know, the early evening, they go back to a hotel room or their apartment, they don't do anything. And I'm, you know, I'm a social guy, I like to entertain, make people feel welcome. So I'm like, let's go out and eat and do things. So that, it's, that's where it started in my freshman term. And then I was dubbed the um, cruise director for the Senate Democratic Caucus. Okay. And so over time, people would always come, where are we going to eat? We're, you know, let's go try this new bar. Let's find something to do. So, um, so from cruise director, we sort of developed into a regular group of folks who go out. And we call it, we've dubbed ourselves the Night Owl Caucus. And so our theme is um, proving every day you can soar with the eagles in the morning if you hoot with the owls at night. <laughs> because our rule is, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been at dinner or, um, or, or out at a bar or something, you better beat that 8.30 committee meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we kind of burned the candle at both ends some, but what's so important is building, that's where you build those relationships. Yeah. And so, yeah, so with the night owls often have what we call our red and blue nights. And that's where we make sure we have try to have as many Democrats and Republicans together uh, having dinner and um, just checking in with each other. And we don't take opposite ends of the table. We intentionally kind of co-mingle at the table so that, that we're talking with our Republican colleagues. What is your favorite place to go in Raleigh for one of those dinners? Gosh, we have a few um, at the risk of making, I'll tell you a recent one we discovered that that's really fun. So, cause I could go on and waste your whole podcast time going through, through our favorite places. But a place we discovered recently that lends itself very well to this is there's a um, pool hall and bar down in the warehouse district called Circa 1888. Um, they have a nice selection of beverages and 
four or five beautiful pool tables with red felt, and they have a patio out back. So this time of the year, that place is great. Right across the street from that is a well-known Raleigh restaurant called Humble Pie. So that makes for a perfect um, after work. Go to circa 1888, you know, shoot a little bit of pool, have a drink or two, and then go across the street to Humble Pie because their concept, as you Raleigh folks know, is um, small plates that you share. And what a great way to bring folks together and share, uh, you know, a plate of a bowl of Brussels sprouts or a plate of sliders or whatever is on the menu that night. So, Senator Woodard, you came to our Do Politics Better dinner, um, one of the first ones we had. This is back in 2019. Uh, you were matched up with Representative Brendan Jones from Columbus County. Can you talk about that dinner and? Was anything born out of that that dinner and, and spending a couple hours uh, having a meal and a couple drinks? We don't, I appreciated getting to meet Brendan. He's not somebody I might have naturally worked with on issues. I mean, we might have bumped into each other on a rural issue or an agricultural thing or whatever. Um, but because we met here at, at the Duke Politics Better dinner that night, you know, we speak to each other regularly, see how we're doing. Now, Representative Jones chairs House Transportation. So as we move forward um, on a number of transportation issues, I feel like I have that connection that we talked about earlier, that personal thing. I, I know Brendan, he knows me. So when we're working on transportation funding and policy um, and what the future of DOT looks like, I've made a connection with him. So I've, we've got a base to build on. This is something we ask everyone who comes on the pod. If you had a magic wand where you could fix one thing in our politics today to kind of ease that polarization that we have, what would it be? Well, I know from your previous guests, Representative Torbert, Representative Dahl, Senator Perry, you know, everybody says, oh, let's get the partisanship out of it and all that. And, and I would agree with that. But one of the things at the root of that, I think, and if, with my magic wand, I would try to remove or at least mitigate the money in politics. Because I think so much of what drives us apart on issues and to our partisan corners in the boxing ring um, is the money part of it. Um, money in campaigns, um, whether it's money that a caucus raises to support a candidate, money candidates are raising on, for their own races, or the um, independent expenditure groups, the dark money, the C4s um, are putting into races. And I think that divides us so quickly because it's just huge amounts of money. I was talking um, at one of our red-blue dinners recently. Two of the people who were there, one red, one blue, were comparing notes. They were both from competitive districts. And they were comparing notes about how much money had been raised against them um, from the independent expenditures and the C4 dark money side of things and what a burden that was to them mm -hmm. in, in getting elected uh, and overcoming that. And um, so, so if I could mitigate um, the impact money has on our elections and on our policy making, that's what I'd do with my wand. Now we, we're seeing campaigns uh competitive campaigns that are half a million, million dollars. I mean, when you look at some of the competitive races and, um, 
you know, we've seen that it really over the last decade or, or maybe even a little further back than that, it's not unusual in some of these competitive swing districts for each candidate to raise and spend a million dollars. So a state Senate seat now, could you could see upwards of $2 million spent. State House races, again, you know, seven dollars $800,000 per candidate. So those are also up over a million dollars now. Um, and again, it just, I, it, it I think makes hard feelings sometimes. It drives us to our corners mm -hmm. um, and uh, forces all of us, um, because even those of us who are in safer districts feel the pressure to raise money to give to our caucus to support those swing districts. And money drives so much of that. Well, Senator Mike Woodard, it, it has been a pleasure to have you at this table. We, we appreciate all you do for your district, all you do for the state of North Carolina, and you certainly know how to do politics better, and we appreciate it so much. Well, it's, it's great being here, and, and thank you for, uh, for saying that. I, um, I do like trying to do politics better and, and uh, just serve our great state and, and our, ind our individual districts. It was great having Senator Woodard uh, on the podcast. He is such a great interview. He is so fun to hang out with. We have hung out with him, as we said, uh, here at the dinners. Such a social guy, and it's so interesting. I wish we could have kept the recording going because after we stopped recording yesterday we probably sat here at the table and talked for another hour about everything politics the u.s senate race going on uh, it, it was just it was just a fun fun time with him yeah it was really fun so next week we are coming back on Monday. We have a very full schedule. I have already peeked at our calendar for next week, and it is full. Lots of bills. And unfortunately, we're going to see a lot of bills that aren't really going to bring us together politically. That's right. I think they scheduled the Save Women Sports Act which is a bill that would not allow transgender folks to participate in the opposite biological sex's sport. And that is something that I think will be incredibly divisive. Very divisive and not just along party lines. We are hearing that there are some Republican legislators who have expressed concern. It's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. We have clients that are coming into town next week. We're going we're gonna to have an exhibition in front of the General Assembly. We're bringing this small little uh, provider that does education, K-12 work, STEM work, science and technology. They're going to be in front of the General Assembly showing legislators their robotics program. Self-driving cars. It, it's going to be be interesting to see how these legislators interact with this new technology that BetaBox is bringing to our K-12 classroom. We also have firefighters that are coming in next week. There's going to be a bill filing on the House side. So the General Assembly will likely see a lot of our, our firefighters from around the state. So next week is going to be kind of a social week for us. They are going to spend a lot of time inside of the building, and they love to spend time outside of the building with legislators. So we're going to have a good time next week, a very full, full schedule. Yeah, it will be social. And Keep in mind that everyone has had a week off, so legislators come back into town, they're fully rested, so maybe they're more willing to go out at night as well. Well, that's our show for this week. 
Sky, I am looking forward to getting back to the General Assembly next week. Looking forward to having our clients in town. Listen, we want you to subscribe to this podcast, download and share the podcast when possible. And remember, if you rate and review us, you are helping people find this podcast. So please do that. If you have something bad to say about the podcast, just say it about Brian. <laughs> we, we hope you have a great weekend, a great week next week. And remember to do politics better. Nose hairs are honestly distracting. <laughs> it's, it's time to wax them. Should we do it this afternoon? Yes. Okay. <laughs>